everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we have operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system, in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday Injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have a simulcast and we will be talking with some local activists working on police reform in Davis, California, my hometown. I have here Morgan Poindexter, Arthi Sakar, Lupita Torres, and Dylan Horton. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. So I was hoping maybe we could go around the room here and everybody can uh, explain the role that they've played in the discussion on policing. Absolutely. Um, so I'll go first. My name is uh, Morgan Poindexter and I got involved here this summer um, I've always been sort of interested in um, criminal justice um, and, and kept really close tabs on the news and everything, but had really not ever gotten into local activism until this summer. And um, like everybody else, um, a real sort of moment of uh, reckoning with all of the stuff that happened, starting with Ahmaud Arbery, um, Breonna Taylor and George Floyd. Um, and so I just got really compelled to um, get in there and actually do something. And so I started working with a group of uh, researchers here in Davis. Um, so I'm a UC Davis graduate student in immunology. Um, so nothing to do with criminal justice, but um, we definitely look at data and analyze um, data and look at research, uh, academic research and go through papers and things like that. And there was a call for sort of that expertise. Um, so that is where me and Arthi um, and some others, um, Julia Shaw, uh, Jordan, Barney, Caitlin French, Rowan Boswell, and others joined up to try to help the city of Davis, um, who put together a joint subcommission of the Police Accountability Commission, Human Relations Commission, and um, the Social Services Commission to reimagine public safety and what that might look like. And so we put together a presentation of how you would approach public safety from a social determinants kind of public health perspective. And then I really started digging deep into um, the DPD data on arrests um, and, and uh, 911 calls, so calls for service. And so that's a little bit about me. Great. Um, Arthi, you wanna introduce yourself? Sure, yeah. Um, just following up on everything that Morgan said, um, I'm also, you know, a community member at UC Davis, PhD student, studying something completely different. I study um, genetics and genomics um, in humans. Um, but again, you know, I couldn't ignore the sort of moral imperative this year to really respond to um, police brutality in, in our communities. And, and just the time is is now. Um, and so I really wanted to kind of step up and was able to join this lovely group of researchers um, and kind of just contribute my 
my skills that I've garnered during a course of graduate study work um, of reading lots of papers um, and trying to contribute what I can in terms of summarizing what's already been done um, to do uh, criminal justice reform and policing reform and just contribute to the conversation. And so that's, uh, that's what brings me here. And Dylan? Yeah, good, uh, good afternoon, evening. I'm not sure when the cutoff is sometimes. Um, but yeah, um, my name is Dylan Horton. I originally uh, got involved with um, criminal justice and policing issues, specifically in Davis, I guess, around uh, the aftermath of the Picking Day 5 incident. Um, a number of uh, activists and organizers in the community um, we're, we're trying to, uh, number one, support the people who had been charged, uh, we thought, sort of uh, wrongly um, uh, for assaulting police officers in a situation that's too complicated to get into now, but I think most listeners of, of this podcast will be um, at least somewhat aware of that incident a number of years ago. Um, and, um, you know, folks uh, uh, picketed outside of uh, City Hall. Um, they um, came down to sort of fill the aisles, uh, public comment at city council meetings to demand some sort of, number one, accountability for the specific sort of situation that had happened there. Um, uh, but a, a sort of a system change that, that made incidents like that less likely in our community. Um, and the sort of community conversation and um, sort of outreach process that the city underwent during that time led to the creation of the Police Accountability Commission and the um, reforms of the previous police ombudsman position that's now the uh, independent police auditor. Um, I was uh, one of the original appointees to the uh, Police Accountability Commission when we were, I guess, impaneled in uh, December of 2018. Um, I, I guess I should roll back a little bit before that, but a lot of us, uh, or some of us who were um, on the commission were also um, involved in uh, Dean Johansson's um, district attorney's campaign. I know it's a county level thing, but I, I, I just reference that because it involved uh, really right before uh, the commission got started, a lot of conversations with folks in the community right here in Davis and across Yolo County about what needed to change across the board in our um, uh, criminal justice system here in Yolo County that, that had really harsh it's like harsher than in other sort of nearby uh, communities here in Northern California, really harsh impacts on brown and black communities uh, here in Yolo County. Anyway, um, so that was a, a bit of, of, of some of the um, just situational experience that I had just before the, the commission got together. Um, I was the vice chair of the commission in its first year and then became chair uh, at the beginning of this year. Um, obviously, you know, Morgan sort of, um, uh, actually, both of y'all sort of referenced the sort of national situation that we were in uh, after the murder of George Floyd and a number of others um, just in the summer of this year. Um, and uh, I think there were a lot of folks in Davis who were like looking for some sort of leadership, looking for some sort of thing to get behind, uh, you know, initiatives uh, to back and to push. Um, and so a lot of um, sort of organizers that I had worked with in the uh, past uh, got together to organize what was called the March for Justice. We sort of led out from uh, Central Park with a number of people sharing their stories of sort of racial profiling and sort of the civilian context here in Davis, um, but also um, experiences with the police 
um, here in Davis, and we had also a um, you know a, a family who had uh, been victimized by Woodland Police also there um, at the event. Uh, we marched through downtown to the Davis Police Department, and a number of um, advocacy organizations, you know, folks like People Power, ACLU, YOLO um, chapter, um, and others, sort of listed out demands for change in our system here. Um, in Davis and what the whole point of that sort of very long very hot event was is to sort of focus our energy locally and what we needed to do to reform the system and to get its sort of structures changed and the the, the sort of um, demands listed out by groups like NAMI YOLO and others at the in front of the police department that afternoon sort of at least for me became the outlines for what we needed to propose here in Davis and I sort of tried to be clear and consistent on that. And I think that means uh, uh, separating these things that we would traditionally call uh, social services or, you know, community services away from armed law enforcement, you know, i.e. we don't want someone uh, uh, delivering those services, showing up in a police uniform and with a gun. But we also, I think, should separate, um, and I think this is, um, necessary for a number of reasons that I hope we'll, that I'm sure we'll discuss later, uh, but we have to separate these services and the, the sort of uh, staff involved with them from the administration of the police department um, entirely. I think that's really important. Um, so I am one of the four members of the Police Accountability Commission that has been um, sort of sent as ambassadors to this um, uh, triplicate uh, subcommittee, uh, subcommittee that Morgan referenced earlier that includes uh, members of the Police Accountability Committee and the Davis uh, Social Services Commission um, to put forward recommendations to the City Council. Um, I guess in our best estimation of what we need to do to reform the process here. Um, I, I, you know, should just say, I think this is a little bit punting the ball. There was, uh, you know, 90 minutes plus of public comment at uh, the city council's June uh, budget meeting where uh, uh, members of the community had very clear demands about what change they wanted to see. Um, and the, the, the city council, um, took the action of creating this subcommittee um, at that meeting. Um, and it's been, um, uh, you know, an interesting um, uh, and uh, sort of up and down process as we sort of uh, led from uh, uh, earlier this June until now, but uh, that's, that's where we are and that's sort of the role that I play um, in this uh, uh, subcommittee. Great, thank you, Dylan. Uh, Lupita, did you wanna introduce yourself? Hi, um, my name is Lupita Torres and I am a Davis resident and I have uh, uh, was one of the first uh, peoples to uh, help with the uh, formation or the foundation, I guess, of the Police Accountability uh, Commission, myself along with us, hundreds of community members. Um, we facilitated several um, meetings and forums across Davis to uh, get testimony and also hear from the impacted communities of um, the the situation we have with the Davis Police Department in uh, addressing the the issues of uh, discrimination and some profiling that was going on and so uh, I ran the low income forum and uh, attended the uh, Native American and um, um, one other form, but I forgot what it was. But anyhow, so I did have a chance to hear from actual impacted peoples. And I am also a survivor of uh, police uh, 
uh, harassment and abuse. So I, you know, speak diligently on these things because I, I come from a lived experience. Um, it's important for people to understand that. Um, I do not hate the police. I really want to say that to everybody because I feel like there's this really wrong assumption that everybody that's doing a uh, work around defunding the police and, and things of that nature are, are against the police. No, we are not against the police. Um, you know, some of us have a family in law enforcement, including myself. However, I am against corruption within any police department and the abuse of power that goes along with that. So um, I don't think that uh, the police should be concerned about people raising awareness on this issue being against them. I think they need to be more concerned with, you know, some of the existing corruption in the police department. So that's where I'm coming from. Um, and I go against the grain sometimes with <laughs> what folks in Davis might, you know, want. But, but know that I'm always in support of the communities that I represent, you know, which are the disenfranchised, the vulnerable frontline communities in uh, Yolo County. And so that's uh, my experience. That's where I'm coming from. And so I just, you know, I hate to speak in public on these things. <laughs> you know, I really am super shy and I, I really don't want to be putting my neck out there on the chopping board, but you know, somebody's got to do it. Right. And um, you know, you, you have people all across history that, you know, have had to do that and that's what it entails. So I'm willing to go the extra mile and to get this thing done. And it's been an issue since I moved to Davis. Um, I've been a community resident off and on for about 20 years now. And it started um, when I was attending UC Davis here in the early 2000s. And the, back then it was really bad. So there have been some improvements and I support the work that uh, everybody's doing. And hopefully we can get some real change in our community. Great. Um, so I wanted to give a little bit of background. Uh, Dylan had mentioned the uh, 2017 picnic day uh, event, but uh, actually um, there are some events that uh, preceded uh, that event. And uh, when I was on the Human Relations Commission uh, back, I wanna say 2013, 2014, uh, there was an incident where there was uh, a, an African-American gentleman uh, who was mowing his lawn in uh, West Davis. And uh, a police officer approached him uh, and asked him for his ID. He's on his lawn. And uh, the guy was really offended. Uh, he ends up going into his house and uh, the officer realized as, you know, he's basically walking into his house that this was not the guy that he was looking for. They were, uh, it turned out that they were looking for a, uh, a, a burglary suspect and somebody had seen uh, a black man in Davis and, and, and jumped to conclusions. So this is kind of a Karen situation before we knew what a Karen was, right? Um, and so when, uh, you know, we pushed, um, uh, it wasn't Chief Pytel back then, it was Assistant Chief Pytel, uh, at, but we pushed him uh, for uh, police stop data. And, you know, we had this kind of prolonged discussion and we realized uh, at that time that uh, uh, that was, uh, we were going to, uh, we would have gotten some of that data, but uh, we ended up uh, deciding to do this, uh, uh, this kind of restorative justice process between 
people of color and uh, the leadership of the police department. And from that, um, it was like a year long process. Uh, and, and from that, uh, they created the alternative complaint resolution process. Um, but we've been trying to get data on police stops. And actually this goes back um, 20, uh, 2006 when my wife was uh, the chair of the Human Relations Commission and they ended up uh, getting shut down. They had requested police stop data and uh, the police at that time said that, uh, oh, uh, sorry, we had this data and we threw it out because we didn't know what to do with it. I know. Uh, so, so then uh, in 2000, I want to say seven, uh, I think right around 2017, right after picnic day, we had a couple of public events and we pushed uh, the Davis Police Department again uh, to release uh, traffic stop data. And at that time, uh, the state legislature had just passed, I forget what the uh, legislative uh, number was, maybe one of you guys knows, uh, and they said, well, we got to uh, get that out by uh, 2021. So at that time, I put in a public records request uh, for the traffic stop data. And amazingly enough, I got the request in, uh, I want to say May or June of this year, like three years after I, I, I sent out the request. <laughs> Um, wow. and, and we finally got the data and this is the data that you guys ended up analyzing and uh, you know I guess to their credit uh, they they got it out like a year earlier than they were required to by law uh, but uh, I wanted to put that background in so that you guys understood because I know most of you uh, weren't here you know back in 2006 uh, this is a really long fight and process uh, that took a long time for us to get. Um, so I wanted to uh, kind of put that out there as kind of the background and then ask, uh, you know, because I know you guys did really good work at analyzing this data and starting to look at it. And so that's really what I wanted to uh, discuss here now. Um, so what have we learned now uh, from this data that now that we finally have it? Yeah, can I ask a clarifying question? So when you received the data, did you get raw data or their report, which is the publicly available report that's on the city's website? I believe I got the uh, publicly available report that was on the city's website, but at yeah. least we got something. Yeah, exactly. And so that's 2019. And so I think that's a good um, point that, that we should make um, when talking about transparency. And again, like you were saying, I mean, this goes back to a fundamental right of the public to have this information and to have it in a timely manner. Um, in our process, um, I found that the city of Davis um, and, and the Davis Police Department is fine with, at times, <laughs> which you've learned, um, putting out data which is and analysis themselves. So putting out charts and graphs that they've put together. Sometimes um, they have tables which have actual, you know, number values, um, but really an analysis and not any of that raw underlying data, which basically puts us in a place where we can't really check whether what they're saying is true or not. Um, and that's super frustrating. Um, and so we have been attempting to get 
the raw data. And, and one thing that I stress is, so I come from Arizona, so I moved to um, Davis in 2016, I guess I should give that perspective. Um, but I come from Arizona and I lived there my whole life. And there are some really problematic, um, really, really terrible police departments in Arizona. Um, and even some of the worst ones, uh, sorry, Phoenix PD, um, <laughs> uh, they even put out raw data and they update it every single day. Um, wow. It's publicly available. It's a database. You can click on it, download it every single day at 11 a.m. It's there without fail. Um, and they are dealing with a massive population, right, too. So that's a huge endeavor. Um, so I guess to start off this conversation, I would say I don't really understand why a city of this size um, with the crime rates that we do have, which violent crime is like, uh, I think the, the newest rate is 1.7, which is very, very low. Um, and property crimes is a little bit higher, but I'm not sure why we don't have that level of transparency. So I would say that's the first thing that the police department could do um, to start this conversation and start it in good faith. But to talk about um, what we learned, um, I, I think it comes as no surprise that there are racial disparities that we see in that data, whether it's um, stops or whether it's arrests, even in who is searched when you're stopped. Um, the uh, arrest rates, I mean, sorry, the stop rates um, for um, black people in Davis or who are stopped by DPD are 4.5 times higher than for um, white individuals who are stopped, right? And, and this is the perception of the officer of whose race it is. But, um, and for Hispanic people, Latinx people, it's 1.7 times more likely. So that is a huge disparity. That is significant. Um, and then if you look at who's searched, it's slightly higher um, for uh, the uh, black people in Davis, it's 4.7 times more likely to be searched than a white person. Um, and so that's unacceptable uh, to me. And if you look at arrest rates, it's right in that same um, area. It's 4.4 times more likely for someone who is black. Um, and, and actually, let me uh, step that back a little bit. So we first did an analysis of looking at total arrests. Um, which is a logical place to start. Um, but we got some feedback from DPD saying, well, in actuality, using the population numbers, that's how you normalize to population is how you would get a, an arrest rate. That doesn't really work because there are people from out of town. So we redid the analysis um, and looked at just Davis residents who were being arrested by um, the Davis Police Department. And we saw the same trends, almost in the exact same um, uh, numbers. So Again, it's 4.4 times more likely to be arrested in Davis if you're a, a black Davis resident versus um, if you were white. And that's just, again, just on its face, unacceptable. Um, and, and that number jumps up to 6.2 times more likely if you're looking at just felony arrests, which actually is just re really terrible. Um, so, so that's some of the racial disparities that we've seen in the data. Um, as far as, I, I think I touched on this, but as far as what crimes are being committed in Davis, it's not violent crimes. Um, violent crimes make up a very small percentage of the total crimes that are happening here. We are on every single year's top 100 safest cities in California to live in. Um, and the only reason we're lower on that list is because we have a little bit higher property crime rate. Um, and so that's bike thefts or, or more serious thefts, but right, anything to do with theft. Um, and so really from my perspective, and, and again, what we've seen in the data, we looked at calls for service, is that a large percentage of the time, they are not responding to 911 calls or they're, they're not responding 
to incidents which involve a violent crime. Um, it's, it's, there's a little bit of debate over the percentages, but it's less than 5% if you are very, very generous with your numbers, right? Um, so yeah, I guess I'll let someone else jump in. And I, I'll just add that, you know, one of the things that the data tell us, so um, what I was saying is that for years, um, we've heard anecdotal stories uh, from African-Americans, especially uh, Latino, Latinas um, as well, uh, that they've been stopped. Uh, in fact, um, I have kind of a running joke that I've never met uh, an African-American who spent any time in Davis that doesn't have a police story. Um, and uh, I, I mean, it, it, it's pervasive. And so uh, what, what these data show us is what we had been hearing anecdotally for years. It's just nobody had ever put the numbers on it. Um, so I don't know if anyone else wants to kind of jump in with that. Yeah, well, especially too, I mean, you look at the, um, if, if you look at when you're stopped, um, again, I said, you know, if you're, if you're black in Davis, you're much more likely to be searched by police after you're much more likely to be stopped, right? Um, but then if you look at the, whether they find contraband or not during those interactions, there's no difference in the percentage of time that you find contraband, um, which would maybe I guess be the, the argument or could be an argument um, for why you would maybe be stopping certain individuals or another. I think it's a bad faith argument, um, if I'm frank, but that would be a way that you could look and say, okay, well, maybe are we finding a lot more stuff on these people when we stop them? And so that's why we need to keep stopping them. No, you don't. I mean, that, that is what the data says. It's actually, you're less likely to find contraband um, on a, a black or Asian uh, person that has been stopped and searched um, than you are for a white person. So it's actually slightly higher <laughs> if you're white. Um, so the argument there doesn't work for me. Um, and that's the stop and frisk finding too, right? That uh, people of color are more likely to be stopped, but white people are more likely to actually have the contraband. Exactly. And just David, to that point, I think it's important to, to note here that these trends really do reflect the sort of national picture here, right? That in terms of, you know, the, the, the sort of bias in like what's a threat and who's sort of a criminal is, 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 is similar to what we see in other communities, uh, these sort of biases in the stops, uh, in the searches, uh, and, you know, in the, the, the sort of arrests are the same ones that we see, you know, in other communities, not just across California, but across the country. And I, the, the reason I think that's important for us to, you know, spend some time reflecting on is there's a lot of, and, you know, people who've heard me talk about this have heard me talk about this a lot this summer, there's a lot of distance that we um, as Davisites sort of put between ourselves and what are just, you know, baseline American issues uh, of racism and, of you know, misogyny and sort of all the other isms that we, uh, I think, as educated Davisites uh, understand exist um, across the country, but there's just this sort of bubble, I guess, that we assume that, that, that sort of exists over Davis that prevents those things from getting into our community. Um, and, and so I think it's Im important for, 
for folks to realize that this conversation about Black Lives Matter, this conversation about defunding the police, this conversation about like, you know, 400 years of systems of oppression and subjugation, that's not a, 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 a America minus Davis conversation. Um, that's, a, that's, a, that's a Davis and the rest of the country conversation that I think folks uh, have to, have to uh, um, look at the information that way and then organize their own actions uh, uh, based on that. Absolutely. And I, I think that that gets to the heart of one of the sort of um, impediments to progress that I've seen, um, especially this, this summer, just in this work uh, that really slows things down is this Davis exceptionalism, right? And, and if we think about the data too, because that's where my head goes all the time, it's really, really important to stress that the data shows that it's a problem, but the data can't capture everything that's happening. So the fact that the data shows that there's that much of a problem, what's not reported has to be much worse. I mean, you don't have anybody writing down every single time that they disrespected someone when they showed up to a scene. You don't have microaggressions written down. You don't have every time, you know, an officer puts his hand on his gun when he approaches someone, you know, of a certain race and not another. I mean, you don't have that data. That data doesn't exist. So the problem is a lot larger than the data shows. And again, like um, Dylan is saying, it's not the United States minus Davis. It is Davis is a part of the United States. Davis has police officers who exist within a system which was from its foundation racist. Um, and so we need to recognize that. It's, it's uncomfortable as, as white people, but we need, to, we need to be clear about that. And I think, you know, you raised the, uh, an, an important point that I hadn't thought of uh, quite in uh, the, the term that you used, Davis exceptionalism. What I've seen as, as a white person who's lived here in Davis for now 24 years is that as a white person, I personally have not had any problems with the police. I, I get treated well. Unfortunately, I've uh, had lots of contacts this year with them. Uh, but, um, you know, my, my experience personally uh, is very good. It was only when I started, um, you know, first uh, through my wife's work, uh, seeing uh, stories of people of color and then personally working with people of color in this community that I realized that uh, there, there are really two types of justice in Davis. Uh, one for white people and one for people of color. And uh, I know a lot of people don't want to hear that, uh, but I have seen it way too many times that uh, people of color get treated very differently than I do and my family does. And if I could just follow up on that just briefly, you know, I, I think the reason that I focus on this and I, you know, not to speak for Morgan, but I could assume the reason that Morgan focuses on this too, is that it's not that we're trying to sort of label Davis as this like exceptionally mean town. It's just that there is this, I think part of it, you know, David, like you say, is this, you know, it's not people's lived experience uh, for, you know, for, given the demographics of our town, it's not most people in Davis's lived experience to have, you know, sort of uh, uh, focused um, and sort of traumatic sort of uh, relationships with local policing. Um, uh, and 
it is, as Morgan said, a barrier to us moving forward. This sort of ingrained um, picture of our community that doesn't have these problems makes it hard for when, you know, a group of folks like us are saying, wow, we need some really like change, you know, not even knock down all the walls, like reconstruct this thing from, from, from the foundation sort of change. We seem like crazy people. Because the, 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 the picture that we describe, the change, the, the sort of picture that we describe that justifies uh, this change is not something that people are familiar with, most people, um, including like senior decision makers. Um, and and that, that does become a barrier for us moving forward. And so I, I just wanted to you know, clarify, that's why um, people of color who are sort of operating in this space, but also people who are just aware of the experiences of people of color who are operating in this space, focus on just putting these stories out in front of people because it's, it's people's lack of understanding in our community has really become a barrier to progress. So let me ask you guys this, because uh, I think we've kind of fleshed out uh, the concerns. Uh, what What is the answer here? How do we how do we fix policing in Davis? And, and don't get into defund yet because uh, that's gonna be the second part of this discussion, but just in terms of police stops uh, and uh, you know, bias policing, how do we solve that or do we? Well, I would say, you know, um, I'd like to speak on this a little bit. Um, there's di different types of diversionary programs. Um, there's the CAHOOTS model that has been referenced several times during the um, um, meetings with the Yolo County Board of Supervisors. And um, in Portland, Oregon, they have uh, work that they do with the mental health uh, communities and organizations to help um, the police when they have a mental health crisis intervention situation. Um, there's also other models uh, in uh, Camden, New Jersey, uh, Denver, Colorado, and in Dallas, Texas, there's um, something called the STAR. I was just informed of today. I don't know too much about it, but if you wanna go ahead and, and you know put that in a web browser and Google it, um, there's uh, different types of alternatives to uh, addressing the concerns of the community. And um, we don't have to put people in jail the, the way that we're doing it right now. Uh, Finland has a very good um, incarceration model. I mean, it's not even incarceration, really, it's rehabilitation. So for me, it's always a question of <laughs> how are we going to rehabilitate these people? Sorry, it's my son in the background. How are we going to, and that's why I fight hard for this little guy here. Um, little, you know, Native American boy with, you know, darker skin. I know he's going to get targeted if we continue living in Davis. And so that's, that's my motivation. But um, I know that there's um, different models in different cities. And like I said, Finland has a very good, very, like one of the most progressive, um, quote unquote, prison models. So, um, I mean, there's lots of options. It's not very hard to do the research. We just have to want to do it. The hardest part is to make the police understand that it's not necessarily we are against them. We do not want corruption in the police department. And if they want to continue receiving funding from taxpayers, there needs to be a big, huge, just lens put on this whole system. That's the, the, the data, the facts, the evidence are there. There is racial discrimination in Yolo County. 
there is, um, there's a lot of things that need to be done and we need to want to do them. And we have to decide right now where we want our money to go. And it's not about defunding the police or even divesting and investing. It's doing the right thing because people are dying. They're getting angry and upset. And the point I want to make is that this anger, as we saw in West Sacramento, can turn into types of violence that we don't want our country to spiral into. So that's why this conversation needs to be at the forefront. We need to build a bridge between law enforcement and the community and provide real solutions because they, we are literally getting shot out here. And when we call the police, we're often not supported. And I'm gonna tell you, yes, it happens in Davis. And it happened to me this year. So me just coming out here and talking about it, I'm at risk of not getting help when I call on the police. It's already happened. But like I said, some of us just have to put our necks out on the chopping board, right? But that is not fair. So we just have to do what is just fair, have honesty and integrity in our police departments and hold them accountable when there's bad behavior. Thank you. Um, I just want to number one second all of Lupita's comments. Um, and uh, I think just to add two other things here, I think um, number one, uh, we have to change some things that are sort of outside of Davis's jurisdiction with regard to accountability. Um, this uh, police bill of rights, God help us, um, has to be addressed at the state level. Um, and so, you know, these it, it's going to be really difficult to um, really set up the uh, um, accountability in police for when there are problems um, for weeding sort of these, I hate the, you know, bad apples, and I probably think probably all of us do. Uh, but if, they, if, you know, if we had sort of better systems of accountability that were available to us under state law, um, then, then we could uh, sort of create those systems here in Davis. And I think that's a, that, that is a big sort of obstacle toward, um, uh, or in the way of us making these, uh, sort of weeding the bias out of the system. I've talked a lot about, um, you know, all, a good chunk of my family um, professionally worked in healthcare. And there's all these dang, you know, nursing boards and, you know, pharmacy boards and boards of medicine, you know, in the different states um, that have, uh, you know, all of these systems of accountability. If you just mess up just a couple of times uh, as a nurse or as a doctor, as any number of other healthcare um, professionals, you're dragged before this board and you have to answer for what you've done um, and for the people that you've harmed uh, through your negligence or whatever else. Um, and, uh, uh, and again, just creating systems that look like that in law enforcement, that I think everyone would think would be logical and just, um, given the sort of power that people with guns um, have, you know, to, to, to really sort of mess some things up if things go wrong. Um, uh, that has to be a part of uh, the place for we move in uh, armed policing, because even sort of the the ideas that, that that I'm sort of pushing for and that others are pushing for in Davis still envisions some type of armed law enforcement in the community after those reforms take place, and so we still need to figure out what we're going to do to make sure that um, that system is not completely unaccountable. Um, um, and so I think uh, uh, state bills, uh, state police bills of rights are, are a real obstacle to that. But then second, I think. Um, 
uh, going into sort of what uh, a lot of what Lupita was saying, definitely at the beginning, um, I don't think there is any, you know, true addressing of this without separation or without, you know, it, it, without sort of, you know, as you were sort of suggesting in your question, without getting to the defund sort of part of this conversation. Um, because, um, you know, we, we spent a good amount of time talking about just traffic stops in general and sort of people's anecdotal or, you know, the data on that. And um, the, the, the reason that there's so much of a problem there is because when I'm driving, uh, you know, through this community uh, and I see, you know, a black and white vehicle in my rear view, um, my thought isn't really about, oh, these are people, you know, here to, you know, enforce traffic safety. The thought is like, you know, at, at sort of least intense, this could be a thing that sort of messes up or ruins my life for a little while or perpetually, um, or in the more sort of violent physical sense, this could be a thing that sort of really uh, puts my life in jeopardy. And uh, that's why, you know, eliminating the sort of violent or coercive uh, uh, bias that exists in traffic stops can only exist when that's not an armed law enforcement situation. When the person who, who is in, in, in charge of making sure that people stop at stop signs can't kill you, um, can't send you to jail um, and sort of ruin your family. Um, and uh, so that, that's, that's sort of where I think the path forward is. It, it, it exists in um, accountability that can't really be achieved unless there's some change. Uh, in state law, but also the separation or the defunding or whatever sort of label we're putting on it, that that is definitely a key to um, removing the, the the very negative bias from the system. I wanted yeah. to uh, get Arthi in on this discussion as well. Yes, thanks, David, um, and thank you to yeah, uh, Dylan. I, I yes, echoing everything that you just said, and also just. Um, recognizing that it's really difficult to talk about, you know, um, handling traffic stops in a different way without recognizing that this has to come from divesting from the police, from defunding the police. It's an, it's an uncomfortable conversation, but it's a very necessary conversation that we have to have. Um, and, you know, like Dylan, like you mentioned earlier, the separation is really key. I mean, we know that the history of policing in this country has been has been rooted in racism, and and more in modern times, the training um, of, for police officers is quite uh, focused on um, mil, you know militarization techniques. So you know the two thirds uh, of training for police officers focus on focuses on firearms training and self-defense training. And you have a little less than a third of their training time focused on mediation and de-escalation. And so it really speaks to the fact that you have, you know, um, at the root of policing itself in the United States, that, you know, it's very difficult to parse out how you could maybe come uh, towards traffic stops and addressing it in a very different way, in a soft way, um, when it's rooted in the police department. So I just want to highlight that separation is really key here, and that separation couldn't happen unless we divest and reinvest in our communities into different social services that really help folks, um, rather than, um, you know, come at it from a punitive standpoint. Um, so I'd, I'd love to talk more about the divesting perspective, but I just wanted to echo um, what everybody said, especially what Dylan said. 
Yeah, I, I wanted to quickly, because Dorothy talked about training, um, you know, the, the first thought I think for some people is, oh, you know, they're accidentally a little racist. Let's, let's give them some implicit bias training, right? You know, they just need to know um, that it's okay and you just need to do a couple hours um, of training. And research, genuine academic research has been done that shows time and time again that implicit bias training increases officers' um, uh, thoughts that they are not being racist, like it, you get an increase in, in how comfortable they are about it and they feel better, um, but it doesn't change the outcomes, um, whether that's in, in shooting simulators or whether that's in traffic stops. It just doesn't. Um, and so I, I think that's a, a major thing to consider when you know, I think a lot of people's minds go to, okay, well, maybe we could just train them a little bit differently. Um, and they could address this. And so I agree wholeheartedly that, that separation has to be a part of that conversation, especially since a large part of police, um, when you go through academy, a large part of the training is specifically, and it's a little crass, but in, in a direct way, it is just constantly being reminded this could kill you. Someone could kill you at any moment. They could kill you. And it gets kind of like stamped into your brain that anyone at any moment, it could be a grandma with a shopping cart or it could be, you know, whatever, that they will pull out a gun and they'll kill you. And I mean, to me, I, I don't know how you would live that way and not be anxious and not be trigger happy when that's what you've been taught. And that's their formal training, whether that's here in progressive California or whether that's in Alabama, it doesn't matter. That's part of police training. Um, so I just thought that was, you know, as far as and training goes, yeah. There's a lot to be done. And one thing I think, you know, doesn't get enough focus is that when you're talking about training, you're talking about a limited training course. Um, you know, uh, they have the initial uh, police academy. They have the mandated post-training. Uh, but you're really talking about people that start out in the profession at 18, right out of high school. Most of them don't have college education. A lot of them are coming from diverse places to begin with. And, and so you're, you're kind of talking about putting lipstick on a pig as opposed uh, to actually uh, creating an environment where, where you have people that uh, are, are kind of acting in a more sophisticated way. You know, if you had college graduates who, who had uh, college equivalent uh, levels of training, not just a few hours of instruction, uh, it would make a big difference in my opinion. So last year, I'll just point this out as a tiny story, hopefully I can be brief. Uh, but uh, last year we, um, obviously training is one of the things that the Police Accountability Commission for all the reasons that have just been mentioned is something that we're very interested in. And so we um, you know, asked to get sort of a walkthrough um, from the police department uh, of what the training looks like about um, sort of what the timeline is, sort of what the concentrations are. Just give us an understanding as best as we possibly could have about what the training that a, a sworn Davis Police Department um, uh, officer undergoes. And Lieutenant Waltz from the Davis Police Department uh, came uh, to the commission to give us that overview. Um, and David, I just want to underline one of the things that you, you mentioned that, that I, I found really important in that conversation is that, you know, this is weighted way on the front end, uh, that we're talking about 
you know, best case scenario, even if it's a gold mine of training, it's weighted way at the front end um, at the academy training. And, and so um, one of the things that commission members, including myself, were really sort of trying to, to nail down into is what's sort of the follow up here? Um, okay, so you get sort of this training, hey, don't be racist, uh, and then sort of what is, what, what are we doing in year two, in year five, in year 10, to sort of check up on that, number one, how well are we doing here, um, which, you know, you would think would be in sort of any skills training, you're doing that upkeep with the firearms training, right? Like, you can't just, like, do that at the academy, and we're never going to check up with you about guns, for the rest of your career, that doesn't happen. Um, so it would just seem logical that we want to follow up on that. Number one, to see what the what the sort of you know uh, uh, retention of that information and those skills and those uh, uh, ideas are. Um, but also, maybe there's some updates, you know, <laughs> um, after a little while as we're learning more and more about how to not be racist as a country and as institutions. Um, but one thing that I think is also important to point out from that walkthrough last year is, goodness, I, my concern was, it's a, you know, training, 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 and then just this little tiny itty bit in the middle with all the good stuff, um, at least in, in their eyes presenting to us. Like, this is going to be the stuff that the Police Accountability Commission is going to like. And so it's like this tiny little part that seems like one class that's all the stuff that we care about, de-escalation, uh, implicit bias, a bunch of like four things that are like, I think separate, maybe, probably, um, just to sort of get a, you know, a rigorous sort of walkthrough of them, um, uh, but are sort of all piled together. Um, so my, you know, sort of question that I never really got a good answer to actually um, is, okay, so all this is weighted in the front, but how substantial is it? You know, even, even you know, even, you know, at that stage in someone's career. Um, so there's, there's um, uh, uh, much needed uh, uh, upkeep uh, and expansion of uh, how uh, training is given at the front end, but also how it's monitored uh, throughout the, the life of uh, someone's career as a sworn officer. Uh, one, one last point on training. Uh, I, I think it's Chris Rock who does a, a little bit about how if there were American Airlines pilots, if there were just a couple bad apples that were crashing planes and stuff, that we would totally not accept that as a society. And I'm sure I'm not doing Chris Rock any justice with that joke. But um, the way that I conceptualize it with, with training too is um, to Dylan's point, it feels like to me when I think about it, we're asking police to, um, if, if we'd asked a pilot to fly the plane, also hand out all the drinks and snacks, also do all the repairs on the plane beforehand. Also like do the traffic control, make sure he's not crashing into other planes. I mean, there would be so many plane crashes if we asked someone who had a ton of schooling and is an expert, a very good person at their profession to start doing other professions. And I feel like that's a little bit what happens when we talk about policing is we've asked police to be experts in not only their profession, which I have to give them credit, they're heroic in the, 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 and very brave in the dangerous situations that they put themselves in willingly. Um, any first responder, that's, that's an incredibly difficult job and I give them all the credit there. Um, I just don't think that A, they went into it, maybe some of them wanting to be a social worker 
or wanting to be an addiction counselor or wanting to be an EMT, wanting to be a medic, um, insert whatever that is there. Um, that's just not what they've, again, what they've had training on. It's not their schooling. Um, and so I think it seems a little odd to put that all on them. And, it, and it's actually, if you think about it from the police's perspective, I would think very unfair. And you would have pilots crashing a lot of planes and probably being pissed off about their job if that's how we structured it, so. Well, and I think Dylan's point is well taken that what they wanna do is shoot their guns, right? So, so they spend lots of time with target practice, even though uh, you know 99% of police officers never fire their gun in their entire career. Um, but they don't spend a lot of time on the other stuff because that's not their priority. Um, the other thing I would suggest, uh, not just to you guys, but to the people listening to this, uh, you know, so one thing that Vanguard has been doing for the last 10 years now is we're actually uh, sending interns and going into court. And so over the course of 10 years, we've probably covered at least 10 counties worth of courts, and uh, we've seen probably thousands of cases at this point. Um, we see police officers on the stand all the time. And, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. Like, if you talk to a police officer and, and say, well, you know, I've seen police officers take the stand and it's, it, it's kind of scary. And they go, well, you know, a good defense attorney can uh, make anyone look bad. Well, that, first of all, that's not necessarily true. Uh, most defense attorneys don't make most witnesses look bad. And second of all, um, you know, it, it's only when you're challenged, when somebody asks you tough questions that you can't answer, that you realize how little you actually know. And, and so I think, you know, if people saw what we've seen for the last 10 years, they'd be a lot more scared about uh, the caliber of policing uh, than maybe they are now. Um, so I do want to get to defund the police, even though uh, we're kind of running uh, up against the hour mark here. Um, but, you know, um, and, and you guys have actually really talked uh, about it uh, without kind of putting it all on the table. But what is defund the police and, and what do you think in terms of like a co-responder model versus uh, a cahoots model? Uh, what do you see working? Yeah, um, so I just, uh, you know, I just want to highlight, like, the idea of defunding the police really is about redirecting resources to better support services that actively help people live healthier, fuller, more wholesome lives. And so another way to think about defunding the police is to think of it as divesting from the current police budget to reinvest into our communities. Um, so as it stands right now, we dedicate just, you know, across the country, and certainly Davis is no exception, we dedicate a huge amount of funding to the police budget and expect the police to respond to many crisis situations that could just be better handled by social services, um, like calls concerning mental health, substance use disorders, etc. And so I think the idea of divesting and reinvesting really allows for us to redirect this money from over-reliance on policing and directing it towards funding programs that better serve our community's needs. So for example, if we were to, if we we're able to divest 
from the police and use that funding to create and or grow existing mental health uh, social services, you know, that could be housed in a completely separate department from the police um, to respond to those who are in crisis and, you know, get them the help that they need. So that's what really defunding the police means is that you're taking the existing funds and redistributing it in a way that benefits everybody as a community. Um, in regards to CAHOOTS um, and, and the co-responder model, so the co-responder model is basically a model where the basic framework is that you have a police officer, right, an armed police officer, plus a mental health um, professional, mental health slash uh, substance use disorder professional that respond to 911 service calls. Um, typically, the police officer has undergone uh, a CIT training, which is a crisis intervention training. And this training is about 40 hours. And I just want to pause here and say, you know, there's uh, professionals in the famous CAHOOTS unarmed response program where they undergo 500 hours of on the field training. So if you just compare that CAHOOTS versus CIT training for police officers, 40 hours versus 500 hours, it's, it's a huge difference. And just also letting it sink in that there is a lot of complexity when it comes to handling and really compassionately serving our community members who are, you know, dealing with mental health crises like substance use disorders and who are homeless. Um, and so that's one tenet. And so the CUDS program really, you know, kind of steps in and says, hey, instead of having an armed police officer with a mental health professional arrive at the scene, what if we just have a mobile unit that consists of a mental health professional um, slash substance use disorder professional plus a medic arrive at the scene and with a lot of compassion, 500 hours of on, you know, on the field training for de-escalation mediation, support this person in crisis, direct them to existing social services that, you know, exist in, for example, Eugene in Springfield, Oregon, um, and get them the help they need. And so this is really important, right, because you have co-responder models that still have police officers that arrive at the scene. And the, th the thing about that is, is that it can be really triggering for people who've already had unfortunate, you know, experiences with police officers in the past. Um, and that can actually serve to only escalate the situation. Additionally, co-responder models, they found that the clinicians who uh, serve with police officers in these teams, the clinicians find that, you know, they don't get the privacy that they really need to address the client or the patient's needs. And perhaps the police officer is a little bit rash or rushes the decision on, on handing them off to a service. And so the service that the client or the patient really needs isn't really addressed. And so that's kind of why, you know, an unarmed response that really has a holistic and, and, a, and a large amount of training from a compassionate rather than a punitive standpoint is super important. Yeah, and just to quickly yeah, add to, quickly to those uh, CAHOOTS um, model um, or, or EMT ambulance-based models, which don't necessarily with every call um, involve a police officer, it's not as if, um, you know, because I think this is the criticism that happens, right, is A, you won't find um, clinicians who want to do that work and then B if you do find them they will accidentally go to calls that are really violent and they'll get hurt um, and so built into I mean we're smart people who are making these uh, programs um, built into that program is the ability to 
call law enforcement if the situation necessitates it. And if a situation involves mental health, clearly, or involves substance use or something like that, but is immediately recognized by a dispatcher as completely needs an armed response, that gets overridden and it goes to an armed response, right? So there's a lot of logical um, step-ins for when you do actually genuinely require force um, and that armed presence. Um, but when you don't, and when it makes more sense to not have it, um, that's when you would not send an officer. And then they can be doing better things with their time, right? You know? <laughs> Um, just to like expand a little bit on the sort of structural defund part, um, and just to sort of second both of uh, Arthi's and uh, Morgan's comments there, because I was actually Morgan all of what I was about to say about the co-responder model. Uh, but um, uh, so we're talking about sort of moving things that exist, like, so my usual list is a list of four, uh, a response to mental health crises, uh, support to people who are experiencing some sort of uh, substance use issue, uh, um, uh, 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 outreach to people who are um, uh, homeless, um, and traffic enforcement. Um, that some of those are um, already in the department in sort of neatly packaged sort of units that we maybe can imagine sort of just picking up and dropping off somewhere else. Um, this year, you could think of maybe the, the homeless outreach program, which currently just has two people um, uh, in them who are non sworn, uh, who are not uh, sworn uh, Davis Police Department officers. Um, uh, sort of the sort of landing places that I have suggested and I think are sort of, you know, uh, moving around in people's heads seems to be one of three options uh, that we could uh, envision um, putting some of these things in a separate existing uh, uh, department. For instance, uh, the city of Berkeley um, has, um, I believe has proposed, I don't think they're really far down the, the process, but has proposed sort of uh, housing their traffic enforcement and public works in their existing public works department. Um, I don't know if that would be the, the best solution here, but that's, you know, that, that's sort of uh, how something like that could work. Um, uh, there's a lot of people who are really focused and I am uh, uh, partial to this idea as well of putting some of these uh, services in um, a completely brand new uh, separate department, some sort of, you know, Department of Public Safety or Community, whatever. Um, uh, um, and then I think particularly as we're considering uh, the, the delivery of mental health services, which always, at least in California, requires uh, cooperation with the county, um, that we uh, explore some sort of joint powers authority with neighboring communities like Woodland and the other cities uh, uh, in cooperation with the county to deliver those mental health services. Um, and y'all basically said all of what I was going to say about the co-responder model, but I'll just sort of round out a couple of other things in that it, it makes me nervous in general. Um, uh, uh, and uh, I think, you know, to a lot of what Morgan said about this being a, a lot about the triaging process at dispatch. You call 911 and you say what? You say what's happening, you say where it is, the dispatcher tries to get some details from you because there's already a sort of a triage process. Now it only has two options, police or fire. Um, but, but, but what is sort of envisioned here is that, you know, we, we're adding some more options to that menu for the dispatcher. Um, and if we are talking about, you know, a situation where someone is uh, uh, in some degree of mental distress that's not violent and doesn't seem to be a threat to someone, 
uh, relative to the call that the dispatcher gets, then we don't need to send, we don't need to send co-responder or we don't need to send um, an officer uh, individually. Uh, that's probably a case that just, you know, requires uh, a, you know, a, a trained mental health professional. Um, but I think uh, there are going to be some tricky cases where it's going to be well, even with the best training, even with five billion hours of training for a dispatcher, going to be uh, cases where it's hard to sort of come down. You know, this is definitely a police or definitely a sort of a social services issue. And I think that is a scenario where we might want to think about deploying a co-responder model. Uh, even even though I'm I'm not, it's 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 uh it it doesn't inspire a lot of comfort with me. Um, but I think that's uh that's sort of my thoughts on um how we deliver those things. If so I could interject, oh go ahead. Sorry, we're just about out of time, uh, Lupita. I was actually going to uh, ask if you had anything to add. I do. I'm actually looking at this article um, from um, ABC News, and it basically gives um, a good perspective on how the um, Camden Police Force um, had worked to actually. Um, they worked with the help of the New York University Policing Project. Um, they went and developed a comprehensive model with uh, the ACLU of New Jersey and the Fraternal Order of Police. And uh, when they disbanded their police department in 2013, by 2019, the number of homicides dropped to 25%. Um, and that was a decline of nearly 63% from 2012. And so um, they did, um, I mean, it was hard. They did have some resistance. Some police left because they were just like, I'm not going to do this. But, you know, it's a potential model for police reform. And they basically rebuilt their uh, police department from the ground up. And so um, it's not undoable. And it improved community relations. And, and they were able to um, have meals with the community and participate and be included in the community. And it wasn't like a separate thing where the, the community were the other and the police were someone else. And so I think one of the first steps we can do is supporting the local voices, collecting the testimonials from the community because I think that um, not along with the research and demographics, I think that people need to hear what has happened to them. And once they hear the horrific stories coming out of Davis, some of I, which I've personally witnessed and um, understand the severity of the problem. Because if you're rich and white in Davis, you're gonna have a great relationship with the police. They're amazing to you. They're lovely. They really are great people. But if you're poor, and you're going through a rough spot and you're like a first time nonviolent offender in Yolo County, your life will be ruined, especially if you don't have a lawyer. And that's something that, you know, why should the criminal justice system protect in Yolo County only the rich people that are able to afford lawyers? Why do we need a lawyer to be protected? And so we need to look at things um, and, you know, not only just, uh, you know, with the police reform, but also with rehabilitative programs, you know, uh, shutting the, down the juvenile detention centers, reformative justice, things of that nature. Um, I used to volunteer doing um, uh, gardens in the prisons in Solano County. I was only able to, before COVID, attend one time. 
but you know they had programs they taught the incarcerated about um job green job trainings how to grow food you know you need to empower people and one thing i do want to say that um i did get a suggestion to say that research supports that investing in education and employee employment helps lower crime rates so we need to look at going back to the research what works what doesn't the answers are out there we just need to be open to accept them thank you lupita um so we're gonna wrap up here um and i want to thank everyone uh for coming out and uh sharing your experiences um this is obviously a critical issue i hope that this level of discussion is happening not only community-wide in this uh, city, but also statewide and, and nationwide, because it really needs to be happening. And I'm hoping that people listening to this can see that this is a very sober discussion. There, that there wasn't like a, a bunch of, uh, you know, foot stamping radicalism uh, going on here. Uh, rather, it's a bunch of concerned citizens expressing very level-headed concerns and, and putting forward what I think are pretty modest proposals uh, uh, to help improve the process. So this has been Everyday Injustice. I am your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mousequake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.